0: Hello, I'm Stuart Chittenden and this is Lives, a show about conversation, community and the people that bring community to life. Today's show is the 150th episode of Live's Radio Show and Podcast. To celebrate, we are marking the occasion with some changes. You'll already have heard the new music that is introducing the show, and that will play us out each week too. This music is an original creation of Andrew Bailey, especially for Live's Radio Show and Podcast. There is also a fresh look and feel to the show on Facebook and Instagram, and over at the show's website, livesradioshow.com. It is also a delight to celebrate the 150th episode with my guest today, artist Waddy White, who was my guest for the very first show in January 2017. In fact, our conversation is in two parts, with today's show being part one, and part two airing next week. Our conversation today is being recorded by Zoom. Waddy White is a painter, printmaker, and public artist based in Omaha, Nebraska. His work has been featured in exhibitions at the Crystal Bridges Museum of American Art, the Minneapolis Institute of Art, Museum of Nebraska Art, the Telfair Museums, Mint Museum, and many more, and his work is in numerous public and private collections. Waddy has been a visiting artist at the School of the Art Institute of Chicago, Hastings College, Carleton College, and DePaul University. Wadi Studio has produced recent public art projects in collaboration with Habitat for Humanity Omaha, In Common Community Development, Omaha Healthy Kids Alliance, Omaha Housing Authority, and Omaha Public Schools. Wadi, welcome back to the show.
1: Thank you. I can't believe it's been 150 episodes. It's really amazing.
0: Let's pick up on that word that you use, collaborate.
1: Mm
0: -hmm. I'd love to explore that a little bit more because it was evident- Uh, Three and a half years ago and actually just looking back I I saw that it was um, October the 12th 2016 was the day we recorded so three weeks before The presidential election of 2016 give or take I
1: I would be uh, uh, Probably embarrassed to to listen to myself now and feel like how naive that kid was who was like 45 I just feel like oh oh.
0: (laughs) It's an it's an awesome show it's an awesome show because I was listening <laughs> okay. back to it. And, um, and I mean, I, I would heartily encourage listeners to listen back to it and enjoy it. And even maybe you, because you don't sound as naive yeah. as, as you think. But, um, <laughs> so, so you, you use that word collaborate. What does collaborating for you look like? How has it looked over the last few years? What are, what are you hoping to achieve with collaboration going forward?
1: When you look backwards at your career as an artist, because uh, you you look at what you made and you try to uh, you remember what you were thinking at the time, um, or you wrote down what you were kind of thinking, um, and then you look at the the path that it that it leads to where you are, it leads you up to the present day, because we all have this feeling of like whatever we're making next, no idea, like no idea what it is, no idea why it is, um, we know that right throughout my whole career. In this, I've always wanted to be able to make a great thing. I'd seen, a, um, I'd experienced art when I was young um, that changed my life, that made me feel something that I'd never felt before. Um, and it felt mystical and it felt strange and mysterious. I remember the, having this feeling of this incredibly profound, mysterious thing, and that if you were someone who could understand that or it could make that that you must be a profound mysterious thing and maybe maybe all those insecurities that I always carry like maybe maybe those would go away because you had you had shown this thing you would if it was real then clearly you were um, good you were like any the worries that you weren't uh, worthy of being loved would be pushed aside clearly you'd be worthy of being loved if you could do something profound if you were a profound person. Um, so I always sought to make something great. And so whenever I, in my early, uh, or still, uh, you know, path of, of being a, an artist and a maker, like you you make something, you look at it, you figure out what's not as good, you figure out what is, what the better things are, you do the more of the better things so that you are continually making something better. And I remember when I first started, um, you know, after graduate school, I first started uh, having uh, all these unprofessional models come, uh, I call them unprofessional if this sounds like it's absurd, uh, but they were yeah, they're, they're all friends. They're, but they were friends who had never sat still and let someone stare at them so long, and it's really difficult to do that. Um, you know, they immediately, these paintings that I would make that would be influenced so much by their suggestions, by our conversation, by jokes that we were, we were making, Um they were so much better than the other things. When I when I made thing paintings or giant drawings or anything that involved my own children, my greatest fear was that I was going to make these sentimental uh, paintings of my kids playing with puppies or something that would just feel like saccharine and and terrible. Um, but if I, you know, if I made them and I'd be a little bit embarrassed by it, and then other people would see it, they'd see it in my studio or they'd see it in a critique next to art that I thought was good, that, that I thought was like going towards that profound thing. They always reacted towards the things that I made of people I knew that, that I had this connection to in a, in such a different way. It was hard to ever deny that, that something different would happen if I made myself vulnerable enough to see a person um, as they were presenting themselves to me whether it was my child, whether it was a friend who was showing me something of themselves for me to paint. And, you know, that's only kind of fed into when I started making more public art, realizing that it was better when it wasn't just me executing the picture that I could draw so well, and these people would surely be appreciative because it would look so pretty, that when they would say something in my presence, If I took something from that and incorporated it, that it released a level of anarchy into the paintings, Um, it released a level of content that opened up new ideas, new personalities in the work and made it deeper, it made it richer, Um, regardless of who they were. If they were a little child saying that they like this one book because I'm painting, making a painting in a library, it affected everything. And that meant that when, not when that kid walked in, but when any kid walked in, they heard a voice in that painting that wasn't my voice, but that resonated with them in a way that I, had never, I never could. And if my art was actually trying to talk to those people, um, if I was going to try to insist on it being about my skills and my, my own brilliance, then I was going to make work that wasn't as good, that was not going to be going anywhere near that, um, that kind of communication. And so, you know, being flawed, understanding that uh, as much as I try to, un- to see the world from multiple perspectives at the same time, knowing that i'm seeing only a part of it from my own eyes and if i'm seeing something that someone else shows me or tells me that's another truth that makes my life richer at the same time as realizing that you know that little kid who told me something that they felt genuinely about in the moment that when i record it, when i listen when i put it in a place of honor Um, that is going to be part of, in this example, their school, that community, that environment for probably the rest of that kid's life. That there is also something that that kid bears from that experience that is positive, that shows them that something that they said even casually had content, had wealth, had meaning in it, um, that hopefully there is a message in there that they can intuit that all that is in them, all that is in them in perpetuity, if that kid's representation is in that mural, if there's a portrait of that child in that mural, then they are in a slightly different environment after that mural is made, that they are now um, a co-creator of things that the adults in their life do not know how to do.
0: Just mentioned yeah. co-creation maybe the best way to talk about co-creation is to actually pick a project and and maybe a hundred people is is one of those projects we could sure we could talk
1: about yeah so 100 people was was my reaction to what I could do um, at the, in the moment I um, decided that I could looking at the skill sets that I had what what could I do as an artist I uh, I can make art. I can, um, I can uh, do it publicly. Um, I have a lot of social capital in this city and thought that I could uh, I could find locations to put put art up um, in a permanent way so that it held, held a long lifespan. Um, I in looking at some of the other uh, projects that I'd done, like I had known that that public art, Like what we had done up in Benson had shifted the way that Benson developed, the way it grew, the way people addressed that neighborhood. And I was also looking around at the people who were so directly uh, threatened by the tone and the social atmosphere um, in the year leading up to the election, certainly confirmed by the election, and then dealing with the aftermath of it directly after the election. January, 2017, I think it's one of my first models of, uh, for the hundred people also started coming around then. And looking at those, those friends who were social advocates, who were nonprofit, uh, people who were youth and who were not straight white guys like me, um, who didn't have the sort of cushion around them that, you know, that we do. And so the idea was that I would make, I would ask, uh, these people that I admire. And it was, it was also clearly um, from my perspective, the people I knew, the people that I had seen what, how they act, that I'd been watching for a long time, the people that I saw, the, the uh, communities that they supported. And I would reach out to them and ask them, describe this project, ask them if they would wish to participate. And if, if yes, they would come to my studio they would wear whatever they wanted to wear. They would uh, tell me how they wanted to be seen, what they wanted the message of this to be. If anything, my uh, my assistance would be to help talk through whatever their idea was. Uh, if there are 50 things going on, edit it down to three powerful things, and then, uh, and then to do the work of it, to uh, take their photograph, carve an actual woodcut, print it, give them a copy of it so that they have this evidence in their home or wherever of being someone whose life and perspective and experiences is certainly worthy of capital A art and then install that that portrait larger than life size in public where they would see it, where people from their community, whatever community it is that they are serving would see it, um, that the person who's building it is going on understands and has signed an agreement that they will keep it for a decade, that they themselves are, are uh, advocating for the person in that mural for the, the sake of that mural, for the sake of that art, for the, the meaning, the content that is going on inside it. In the hope that this would um, begin to, if, that, if I could do enough of it, maybe there would be these spaces that would feel a little bit different, that feel a little bit safer for these people, that there would be something that would feel like they had allies they didn't know about beforehand. And that if I could do enough, maybe if they added up, it would feel like something. Because that's also the, the, the trap of art, is that it's mostly us artists in our room, in our studio, by ourselves, Convincing ourselves that this work that we're doing isn't hopeless and useless. And then if you go put it up, you get to see if it does anything.
0: Can you then tell us about just some of the people, any of these people that kind of spring to your mind, and and maybe just a little bit about the story that they told you and how you've captured it and then where they're presented?
1: When I first was thinking it through, I also felt the obligation to um, make no small plans, right? To if I, if I did one, that might feel nice to me, and it might feel nice to this one person, but one wouldn't really do anything. And so I, I'd come up with 100 as a number that seemed outrageously large, but possible that if I measured up my commitment to it and could get it there, that it would feel like I had uh, attempted and, and done something um, that was good. So, the first round of ones that I, that I put up uh, included a couple of, of youths, included a lot of uh, nonprofit and uh, social justice people. Uh, Emiliano Lerda is one, one of those people. It's, he uh, was the uh, executive director of the Immigrant Legal Service, which is a remarkable organization and one that I had worked with before, where I had seen not only the work that they do, how much work that they produced with so few people, how much difference they made in so many real people's day-to-day lives. Um, And he is standing, wearing a suit, uh, holding up a sign that says immigrant. Uh, When looking to to place these around, um, I did not know how they would be taken. I was beginning to talk to people who owned buildings, which meant I was talking to developers. Which I assumed would be largely uh, a difficult group of people to talk to, but that they would see, they would only want these things if they felt like, they, like it was advertisement of some sort. The first installation of these, the first uh, eight or 10 that went up, uh, went up over in the Blackstone district. Uh, Emiliano was not in the first round of images that was selected. I thought that, um, that he would be a sort of a, a more difficult one to, to place one of the, the locations that we had uh, selected was uh, the backside of this building um, where Moolah Restaurant is. And they um, had originally put in a, uh, this young guy, uh, Maurice uh, Jones, who ran for uh, city council as an 18-year-old high school senior, young gay black man, running against uh, Ben Gray, I think, who had been on the, has been on city council for a long time. Clearly he was not going to win and yet he went around and had like a thousand conversations with people door to door uh, to talk to them about ways to change their community, what their voice was, how they wanted to be heard. Um, And it was remarkable and remarkable as, as an 18 year old. And so I was suggesting, you know, him as a, as this really kind of amazing example, this amazing kid and the, the, a uh, business owner, the guy who ran Mula, didn't like it. didn't did not want it. And I thought that that meant he was not going to like any of it. That he was not he was not in favor of this project. He was not in favor of art. He was not in favor of these voices. I hadn't met him, um, but I assumed that if you didn't like one, you weren't going to like any. I went walking around with Jay Lund, the director or, or uh, ED of Green Slate Development. ED is probably not the right word, but you know. And we went and we were talking to all the, the business owners who were renting space in the buildings that we were going to put these on. It was important to get their, uh, their approval, to get them to know what's happening. Uh, you know, in, in making public art, the last thing you, like, you really don't want anybody to be surprised by what you're doing, no matter how, uh, no matter what it is that you are doing. Everyone should be thrilled about what is, what is happening, um, even if what is happening contains real content with uh, a difficult issue in it. We showed him, or I showed him, like these other uh, examples of the work that I that was in this project, so that this own, this guy who was running this restaurant would see what we were doing, and maybe you know, maybe he'd be open to the project. And immediately saw Emiliano, immediately wanted him because of his own personal beliefs, because of the way that Emiliano's example resonated with with the guy who was running this business. And he felt strongly that this was the sort of person that he would want to live with because he's going to be living with it the entirety of the time his, his uh, restaurant is in that building. It would take a lot to get these things off, which was sort of an amazing finding of community that I didn't know existed, that this guy, this, this owner, um, also felt about the immigrant community and the activists in the, in the immigrant community um, strongly. And had no uh, reservations about connecting him, his social capital, his, uh, his wealth, his whatever he's bringing to it, um, to this issue as well. In a way that he probably had not ever before. Um, that if he, you know, if he was connected, it was on a personal level, not a professional level. He wasn't putting uh, this issue along with uh, how he stands in the community. Uh, Which was really, you know, a wonderful thing to find. And a wonderful, obviously, thing that continues to this day. It's been, well, three years, I guess. Take a look at where you've been and how you've come so far. No matter where you find yourself, you're always where you are. Go anywhere you go Do anything you do I'll be with you Take a moment Take an hour Take another year Start again or keep going I'll always be right here Feel anything you feel Hear anything you hear You'll never disappear When it feels like you're walking back, when you're out of luck and off the path, broken and far from home, just remember that you're not alone.
0: There's a there's another uh, public art project that is. Um, you talked about 100 people and these uh, life-size murals being posted around an urban environment so they'll be seen very visibly by a lot of people over a long period of time you were talking about a decade something that's a little more temporary transient affected by forces beyond our control is a project you did with Fontenelle forest and i think is quite different and yeah. that that project is called paying attention is a form of prayer and it's a very different take, I think, on how people interact with art in public spaces. So I wonder if you wouldn't mind maybe okay. just pivoting a little bit and, and talking about what that project was and maybe a little bit about what you were hoping to achieve with it.
1: Sure. In thinking about, um, or the way my, my practice has progressed, there's always a large element of uh, the work that I make in the studio, which is, winds up being about... Myself, my conversations in my own head, uh, all the people I've looked up to, all the people that I've struggled with, um, and things that come out of that. My public art, I believe, uh, is always site-specific. It reacts to, it's created um, in order to speak to a certain audience, an audience that is located around a certain geographical place, whether that be a, uh, an elementary school, um, you know, alleyways or sidewalks or public spaces, or in this case, Fontenelle Forest. The whole process sort of came about first to out of discussing with Marisa Whitehall, the, the ED at Fontenelle, to do a project and then to figure out what the project was going to be. What are the, the local resources that I can make use of that? That are appropriate and lend something deeper to the the content that we're that we're discussing, the, the things that we're showing. As we were looking a, around Fontenelle to figure out what the what the materials are that were going to be a fundamental part of this language. You know, you walk the forest and you see all these downed trees, these tree, these logs that are laying around, um, that are spaces for uh, decomposition, for bugs but also uh, maintenance of the of the forest so they they felt very compelling and that also got me thinking about the other parts of this creative world that we are that we are in and how um, in looking at those trees and looking at what they seem to present as a as a creative opportunity you know they're a surface they're a material that they would allow me to write in to carve into and it didn't seem like it was uh an appropriate thing to carve a a picture to deal with things in in that sense which is when i am in my own head when i'm in my own studio by myself that's the language that always makes sense to me but that they seemed like they were uh more adapted to the written word to language and that you know these poets that i knew who were writing today, who are dealing with things today in this in this way that I I can't use language without it screaming to me in my ear all these things about myself, all these little things that I am conveying because of the words that I use, the way that I speak it, the the irreverence that I that I have, or the lack of being able to understand how those words change and age over time. So it, what I wound up doing was, was taking uh, part of my stipend to purchase the rights to reproduce part of a poem by, I believe, 20 living local poets, Nebraska poets. So the, I believe, actually, uh, we had the former state poet, um, Twyla Hansen, We had the uh, next state poet, Matt Mason, as well as people that I had admired, like Felicia Webster, people I didn't know very well, like Devel Chris, who I've come to admire so much. He also is one of my 100 people. And one of a the portrait that I did of him is actually in two locations, one on 16th Street over by Chubb Foods, and the other as a, a permanent installation within Weber Hall at the University of Nebraska-Omaha that marks the writing department. Um, and so the project turned into... Me taking these living words from these living poets and carving a line from them into a fallen log that you could read from uh, the most frequented path, the boardwalk um, at Fontenelle Forest, and we made uh, little booklets that would tell the whole, you know, have the whole poem would would mark where you could you could find them, so that that it was a way of not only. Um, Bringing in that language, that understanding of blending um, the sort of lived poetic world of Omaha right now with this sort of this natural world. But also taking these conversations, taking this experience outside of, you know, the, the community that valued the access to nature for decades right the the tried and true people who are coming there all the time to see the goldenrod bloom to, to look at look at how the squirrels are coming into this part of the forest and bringing it out to people who are coming coming to it from poetry to, coming to it from the city that they are you know bohemians who also feel the need for uh, the kind of healing and the kind of serenity and uh, presence that comes from being out in nature and bringing this sort of blended experience. And you know, it's also one of the things that's comforting to me and I think attractive of me to other artists is that most of my projects don't fit super well in one place, in one lane. They sit between a lot of experiences and because of that, they're a little bit uncomfortable for people in either of those experiences. People who were the tried and true audience for Fontenelle Forest initially had a lot of problem with me putting words into these fallen logs. They thought that I was vandalizing. They thought that I was uh, uh, not there at anyone's behest, but my own. I would get confronted about what I was doing, that I had permits for what I was doing, um, because they they could only see me as damaging the way they understood this resource to be. People in the city, uh, people from the art community, uh, would not really understand why you mess around with uh, logs that are going to decay and go away anyway. That it didn't seem like it was uh, that I was sacrificing some of the art somehow for, for what, for an opportunity to make something more or to, to gain social capital by partnering with a organization that would put my name on Facebook or something and bring, and instead sort of bringing it together so that uh, the people who come to that, um, that space um, and there were a, there were a couple of hundred people who spent a day at the opening walking around, listening to the poets read their, read their own pieces. All the booklets left quickly. I uh, heard a lot from people who you know, saw it and, and came from one of these perspectives where they didn't know what to expect. And they walked and they read these lines that were puzzling, that it seemed like there were these little hidden messages out in nature that their kids would see that it was this fun game to play where the, the children who, who were walking the boardwalk would walk for a while and then study the landscape to see what's hidden out there, to you know, this, and in, you know, accidentally see all these bugs, see all these birds, see all these other things and then find the log that has a word on it and find another log that has a word on it. And then the mom could read the whole poem to them and then they could proceed on. Um, or people who were from that, um, that group of volunteers and advocates for nature always being eternal, whose sense of uh, that it was changing um, or that I was changing it somewhat was really uncomfortable. Um, And getting notes from them who attended something where they read the poems, where they saw what what the experience was, where they had some of that experience and realized that this nature you know when seen through this little lens became something different became something uh something else that wasn't just about learning the scientific names for everything but learning how we as people or how other people like them also process the same sort of experience
0: about Fontenelle Forest and people um were being upset that you were tampering, you were desecrating something yeah. that inherently was decomposing anyway. While at the same time, I know that there are private art collectors who not only want your print, but they want the wood block yeah. that you've carved that is the original uh, material from which prints are, are produced out of. Yeah. And I just find that juxtaposition really funny and ironic. That you know there are those that want to preserve the original piece of wood that you've hacked yeah. into for a gallery-worthy piece of output, and then at the same time, people are getting upset in 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 the natural world that you are mm-hmm. that you are etching into something that is already in a state of decomposition and won't exist in in a year or two's time.
1: Yeah, you know, as an artist, I think you come to understand like where. Um, where the language is most uh, vital, where like you can see something that's um, that's as uh, ineffable and um, and surprising as you can. And as a as a student and as a as, you know I mean, as an artist, you're sort of inevitably a, long, uh, a lifelong student. You're constantly looking. You're constantly seeing something you didn't see before. There's a, a 19th century Japanese artist, Katsushika Hokusai, who's been a, a huge influence on me. Literally my whole life. I, I found out about him when I was seven or eight years old. Like he's like constantly been in my head. Um, and he, he would talk about how he could never, do, like everything he drew before the age of like 73 was terrible. And, you know, maybe he'll get this right when he's 83 or maybe 93 or like up to like 143 or whatever like his like little diatribe was. But it, it was beautiful. And in, uh, you know, in, in my own experience, also looking at people like um, Cezanne, where the, the marks become these little uh, terse chunks of color and edge and shape, and seeing how those things then influence the, the cubist, where these marks become recordings of time, recordings of different spaces where you can see things shifting. And there was something in that feeling of, uh, in looking at Cezanne and looking at people like that, where it felt like when you make that mark, you're recording something in real time, a feeling you had, an intuition you were doing. You're putting this little, uh, this little message in a bottle to somebody in the far future who is going to see it and have this immediate connection through time to you, your hand making this thing. In those logs and in the woodcuts, that's what makes them different is that you see this picture and when you're far away from it, it looks very accurate, right? It looks uh, schooled. It looks skilled. And the closer you get to it, the more it disintegrates, the more it has that, uh, that uh, impressionist sort of pop sensation, perhaps in in reverse where it's, it makes a lot of sense and then it disintegrates the closer you get. Um, But then as you get closer still, those marks become, you know, a hand that it it carved this wood. It excised something that you see this gesture, this physical strength of something that left a mark, did it once and stepped away. Each one of those, you only get to cut it one time. And the same with those, those logs, the experience of looking at those logs when they're just decomposing is one very specific way of understanding that material, um its lifespan was supposed to be who it what it interacts with you know this feeling of you know if those things get knocked down the bugs eat them up the bugs live in them until they're no longer there they, it, it is this natural process that's disconnected from us as humans right like we're we're uh uh like the, the platonic ideal of of looking at something but not changing anything when, which seems ironic to our uh, sort of perspectives these days because you change everything you interact with. And when I carve in them, you can't get away from the, the feeling and the understanding that a person is in there doing it, is connecting this this natural material and the processes in it to this human process of making sense of our, of our world and describing it in, in language.
0: How did the poets respond to your artistic interpretation or repurposing of their language into a physical form.
1: Yeah. You know, I think that, that artists of all sorts are kind of where sometimes we are protective of our things, of our work, um, or we're the, the kind of artist who's protective of it at the, at the moment, which generally feels like a, it comes from a point of uh, insecurity, a um, defensiveness, uh, that you don't want someone else messing up your stuff. You work so hard just to get it right finally, and they're just like, someone else is just going to make a mess of it. But also I think that we as as artists also are making this work in order to communicate, right? We're, we are doing these things because it gets us closer to those people who read it, that to those people who see it, that maybe they can see or read something in us that is rare in a perspective that like, we are just happy to participate in. And we need community. We need, um, we need that larger feeling of growth and uh, connection. And to a person, everybody I reached out to was flattered, strangely, and happy to, to participate. Uh, I mean, I think that a lot of these things say, say volumes about the sustainability of art. Um, of these various art practices in this in the communities that we live in, they were thrilled to sell a poem to get paid, no matter how, like paltry sums, but to get paid for their permission to reproduce their poem. And knowing that I was only going to respond to a line, a line at most, maybe half a line, um, which is in, was in return responding to a specific location, a specific kind of a specific manner of walking past. Um, That if it was big enough, that maybe it could say more. If it was really rotten, I'd probably not say much. If it was in um, a playground area where people were going to be in there a lot, where there were going to be kids in there a lot, then it was a a line that would talk to that audience slightly differently. And I think that they uh, appreciated seeing how their words could affect this other environment that they had not been intended to affect. Everybody who came, um, everybody who participated, said really wonderful things about their experience participating. Um, and you know, we're all we're all very nice in the Midwest. So yeah, there's a part of me that has to take everything with a grain of salt. That'd be like, mm, if they hated it or thought I was a total like a hole, maybe they wouldn't say that right away. But I believe everyone understood what I was doing, what they were signing up for, and were pleased with with how it all went, and felt honored um, and respected throughout the throughout the process. I do think that there's, there's something very deep and big in, um, the, the way we understand the world, the way that we as people are kind of hardwired in terms of our basic, you know, sort of resting emotional states. Uh, I remember when I lived in Chicago, listening to and reading this man named Jim Wallace, who was a, uh, a social researcher and a uh, religious scholar at uh, at Northwestern at the time it was this was during the the second Bush terms, and he was researching a lot what was what was so different about uh, the people who seemed to be so conflicted. So, dead said in, that either they were a conservative person or they were a progressive person. Like why? Wh- how did they understand who they were, and what made them think that they were different? And what he found was, uh, you know that that sort of people could be put on this, this sort of graph. This was like very simplified down, but these were the major things were that they were, they were suspended somewhere on this, on this continuum between a resting emotional state of being sad, of waking up and, and feeling a little bit of pain and the result of that making them a little more empathetic, a little more uh, kind, feeling, feeling a need to care for others. Oh, they were waking up on this um, sort of fearful end of this, where they they had some sort of low-level fight or flight going in them, or they they were s- skeptical of people. They were uh, they were suspicious of the motivations of of whatever was going on. Laid on top of that was this comfort with ambiguity, comfort with change, and that if you were really uncomfortable with the only constant in the world being that things are shifting all the time. What you really want is for things to stay the same, for there to be a black and white version of the world where it is true or it is false. It is right or it is wrong. And in thinking about the reactions of uh, the people at Fontanelle Forest who were volunteers and uh, lifelong members, uh, they weren't comfortable with, there being a change in the understanding of what those logs meant or what they were for, or what that forest was for or who it was for. Um, and once they saw what else it was, largely they came around, largely they were happy about this, this project, largely they, they felt like it showed them something that they, uh, that they could care for. Um, and it wasn't uh, about the destruction of these things that they valued so much that it toned down the, the, the fear that they initially brought to it.
0: Speaking up on words that you're using, one of the things that we were speaking about off-air was processing, how we process uh, our feelings, our thoughts, just our understanding yeah. of the world around us, what we're thinking. Y- you are, it feels to me as if describing a process whereby you are, with a little bit of discomfort on their part, enabling people to engage in the world in a way that is different for them and to see it in a way that is different for them. That being said, that observation being made, I want to ask if, you know, since we last spoke in 2016, what are you processing? What are you Mm -hmm. trying to make sense of
1: for yourself? I feel like there is so much room to grow and understand um, in this, in this world. And there it is constantly presenting new things to to understand. I also feel like I, for some reason, have to learn the same lessons over and over. And they are often very simple ones about shutting up, about listening, about, uh, like it's easy for me to have a lot of ideas. I feel like ideas are so simple, or so simple to to dream up. I have a certain education. I have a certain personality. Uh, I like to talk. I really like to connect to people. I like to hear something. I like to learn something if I can find something that I am ignorant of, that is a thing that I now am stronger because I understand because that, that ignorance is going to be filled in somewhat imperfectly by whatever it is I can, I can bring into my, into my life. You know, I think that when we process and talk out loud, um, which a lot of, of the art making feels, it feels that way. It feels like I'm trying to process something out loud. It's scary. And it's daunting. And I think that it is really helpful to have someone else in the conversation with me. Um, and it, hopefully as many uh, voices as I can actually hear in that conversation. And understand what I, what I can bring to it and what I, and what I can't. And knowing that like, uh, the less I say, the more I'm going to get. The less I let anything be about me, the more I'm, I'm going to get. And I think that in this, you know, at this particular moment, there are so many things, so many aspects of the social contract in this country that have been actively dismantled for the last years, have never been fully uh, embraced in the decades before that, that affect so many people in in my daily life. And I'm thinking of not only the the current protests about police brutality, um, but the you know, as a parent, I I place a lot of weight on raising my children in a way that makes them thoughtful and uh, empowered, so that they will understand that as they inherit uh, whatever they inherit whatever capital they, they build themselves, whatever social capital, that there comes along with that the ability to do something and the kind of responsibility that comes with being a, a person and, and somebody who lives in this world with, uh, with all of us. There is a responsibility to sort of, okay, this really simplifies things a lot, but to, to, to live out the campsite rule, right? That you, you leave things better than you found them and if that is a person that you get in a relationship with you leave them in better shape than where than when you found them if that is a an organizational uh relationship you leave it better that you you do more good than you take away and that you you actively look at the ways that you uh aggrandize yourself or the things that you you take from from things and if that means you have to be kind enough to yourself to like not shut down in a state of recriminations and, and anxiety and hatred for yourself, but that you turn that into um, this is now a debt you have to repay and that you have to figure out how you can repay that debt. I feel so incredibly fortunate with the life that I've been gifted to, to live in this world. And that if I uh, can somehow leave this world having, left more good than i took out of it um and left more good in as many ways as i as i could then that's a proper way of of living or more proper way of living i feel like i've gone off on a tangent from your your question
0: My guest today has been the painter, printmaker and public artist, Waddy White. Waddy, thank you so much for being on the show.
1: No, it's been so great too. great to talk to you.
0: That's the end of part one of my conversation with artist Waddy White. Join me next week for part two, when Waddy will discuss the profound impact on his life and career of Rembrandt's etching, the omval, and he'll share some of the -the behind-the-scenes inspiration to his forthcoming exhibition at the Kineco. You can listen again to this show and others by subscribing to the podcast at livesradioshow.com and find us on social media at Lives Radio Show. The music playing you in and playing you out each week was created specially for the show by Andrew Bailey. I'm your host, Stuart Chittenden, and this is Live's radio show and podcast. Join me next week for fresh voices and diverse perspectives on culture, community, and more.